Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me as usual is Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy, how's it going? Well, Natalie, considering I did not just get done testifying over 20 hours before the Senate Judiciary Committee, I'm feeling well-rested and fine. How are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm feeling good. Um, maybe not well-rested, but uh, probably better than Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson, who did sit for those 20 hours of uh, confirmation hearings. Uh, we will be talking uh, about those hearings later in this episode with special guest, our congressional reporter, James Arkin. Um, so I'm excited for that conversation. But first, Jimmy, let's talk a little bit about what's been happening at the court. It's kind of been a busy, busy week, a, a bit of an odd week, though. Yeah, that's right. So there were opinions this morning in a couple cases. One was the Ramirez versus Collier case, the death penalty case. The court sided with the death row inmates' claims there to have his pastor vocalize prayer and touch him in the execution chamber. Um, and there were some shadow docket activity we'll get to in a second. There was also oral arguments, and surprisingly, one of the justices was not in his chair. That's right. Unfortunately, Justice Clarence Thomas was hospitalized on Friday for flu-like symptoms um, and has been treated for an infection in the hospital. The court uh came out with the news on Sunday, which is when we and the rest of the world found out. Um, and at the time said that he'd stay for another one or two days, but he missed three days of oral arguments and it's Thursday. And honestly, we haven't heard anything. No, the only thing we've heard is kind of a man on the street interview that TMZ did with uh, Justice Stephen Breyer um, as he was walking into you know his favorite restaurant, Cafe Milano, over in you know, Georgetown in D.C., and he reported that um, that Clarence Thomas is doing quote fine. So that's the most substantive update we've gotten since uh, the court's press release on Sunday evening. I suspect we'll probably find out a little bit more tomorrow um, when the court is scheduled to hold its weekly conference because I believe that there have been instances when the court has confirmed a justice's participation or absence from the weekly conferences. Um, so stay tuned for that. Um, but if you're listening on Thursday, we still have no official word yet. Now, I mentioned that shadow docket update that we got. Um, this came out actually in the middle of the uh, Judge Jackson confirmation hearings yesterday, um, yesterday morning, in a case out of Wisconsin in which Republicans were challenging um, uh, the, the Democratic governor's state assembly maps that were upheld by the Wisconsin Supreme Court. So in an unsigned opinion, uh, the, Supreme, the U.S. Supreme Court essentially threw out this Democratic governor's state assembly maps, which had created the additional um, seventh black majority district, um, giving uh, African Americans an opportunity to select uh, an additional uh, state assembly member um, in the Wisconsin legislature. So that was a, a kind of controversial item that came out uh, midweek that actually made kind of an appearance later on across the across First Street when it was uh, raised during the confirmation hearings by uh, Senator Amy Klobuchar, who used it as an example of this current court's affinity for handing down <clears throat> significant rulings in the shadow docket that make you know substantive changes to law. So that was that's kind of the big update for the week in terms of what happened uh, at the Supreme Court as opposed to across the street. 
Yeah, so let's talk about what's been happening on the Hill. Um, As we record, we just concluded the fourth and final day of the Supreme Court confirmation hearings for D.C. Circuit Judge Kataji Brown-Jackson. Those began a Monday with opening statements from members of the Senate Judiciary Committee and the nominee herself. So today we're going to break down, you know, what came after those opening statements on Tuesday and Wednesday. Uh, Judge Jackson, as I have talked about, you know, she faced over 20 hours of questions from lawmakers covering everything from her family background, her judicial philosophy, to also Republican accusations that she's soft on crime and has a hidden progressive agenda. So these hearings were, you know, I followed along. They were at times tense. They were at times emotional. And, you know, there was a lot of nerdy elements as well. Um, but while I watch it on my C-SPAN feed, uh, our next guest that we have on now, Law360's congressional reporter James Arkin, was actually in the room. Welcome to the show, James. I see you're kind of beaming in from some small cubby somewhere on the hill, I presume? Beaming, beaming in from an old 1950s phone booth uh, up on Capitol Hill. I love it. I, I love, love it. it. So can you kind of just give us a sense of what it was like to be in the room for the rest of us who were kind of tuning in on C-SPAN because you don't really get a sense of the atmosphere of the tension, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, it obviously started on Monday with sort of uh, an, an air of anxiousness um, from all the senators uh, as they kind of went through their their opening statements. And, and then as Judge Jackson spoke for the first time since she had spoken at the White House with President Biden as her nomination was announced. Uh, and then it was a marathon, uh, a very lengthy session with, you know, breaks here and there, but uh, I think more than 13 hours on Tuesday and uh, another lengthy session on Wednesday. And, you know, the the room, um, it's one of the largest hearing rooms that they have in Capitol Hill. It's specifically designed for high profile hearings like this. And so you had Judge Jackson, you had senators uh, a little spaced out, um, still being a little bit conscious of of COVID-19 on Capitol Hill, Uh, all 22 facing her for the most part towards the beginning. All of the senators were there. Senators kind of duck in and out of the room here or there when they're not asking questions, especially towards the latter end of the hearings. And so you just have Judge Jackson sitting uh, in the center of the room facing the 22. She had Senator Doug Jones, who had been advising her in her meetings with senators directly behind her. She had members of her family in the first row, her parents, uh, her daughters, her husband, uh, who uh, were referred to by senators and referred to by her in in some parts of the questions. And then you had senators who weren't on the committee kind of coming in and out of the hearings to listen. Uh, at one point, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer popped in to listen to some questions uh, you had members of the Congressional Black Caucus, House members come in and listen, and then you had just a pretty wide range of supporters, uh, people who were there to to sort of be supportive of her nomination. And uh, it, you know, at times you could kind of feel the tense nature of of the questions, particularly when when some Republican senators were questioning her, uh, particularly on sentencing um, and some of the questions about her trial court record. And then at other times you could really feel sort of an emotional weight of the historic nature of her nomination. I mean, in particular, when Cory Booker, uh, the only black senator who was on the panel, didn't ask questions uh, during his second round, but just spoke at length about her nomination and what it meant to him and what it meant to other African-Americans in the country and talked about her family. Um, the, you know, There was a moment where the nominee was grabbed tissues to wipe away tears herself. You could see Senator Booker was becoming emotional. You could see people in the in the audience behind the judge uh, were becoming emotional. You can just kind of feel sort of the, the weight of that as he's, as he's speaking in the room. 
Uh, yeah, that uh, at that point she had been testifying for you know between the previous day and and, and uh, yesterday evening, which is when that kind of moment happened. She had been testifying for something like around twenty hours, so you could just imagine kind of the overwhelming sense of you know. Eventually, things start to get to you, right? <laughs> Even for a um, you know a, a, a judicial temperament, but. I just want to back up a little bit because this is, you know, obviously Judge Jackson, this was her fourth time in her career appearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee. First, you know, as a candidate for the, you know, vice chair for the Sentencing Commission, then later as a trial judge, then as a U.S. Uh, circuit judge. But in many ways, this was kind of the first time that we get to see that the that the general public gets to learn about, you know, her broader judicial philosophy and how she approaches cases. So before we get on to some of the kind of tense moments and the kind of political jockeying that we saw during um, the confirmation proceedings, tell us a bit about, you know, what you learned about Judge Jackson's approach to the law. This was, this was a key area of questioning. Republicans in particular really wanted to get into specifics about how she views the role of a judge and what, and what her philosophy is. And you know, multiple times she sort of rejected the notion of putting a label on it. Um, and essentially, at one point, I, I think she said directly, uh, the philosophy is the methodology. It's how she approaches each individual case. And she talked at length about starting from a neutral position before dealing with all the facts. Uh, and, and so she stressed over and over again, it started with her opening statement. Uh, and then it went specifically with questions from from Chuck Grassley, the top Republican on the committee, uh, who has said over and over again that judicial philosophy is, is critical to him. And he had asked her in previous hearings questions about her philosophy. He had asked her in written questions about her view on the idea of a living constitution. And so he, uh, as the first Republican to ask about, to ask questions, went into this directly. And she stressed over and over again this idea of starting from a position of neutrality and impartiality she stressed over and over again sort of her notion of the limited authority of a judge uh, and staying in her lane, uh, you know, efforts not to make policy from the bench. All things that, uh, you know, if you're a Republican senator and you're weighing a nomination, you know, that's the sort of thing Republicans want to hear uh, in terms of not making policy from the bench and in terms of the limited authority of the judiciary, et cetera. And, and so she stressed a lot of that, but she, d she did not... Uh, time and again, she was asked about philosophy, and she just didn't give a label to it. And she just spoke about the the cases that she had and the way that she approaches them individually. And I, I think a lot of that comes from the fact that so much of her experience is on the trial court versus on the appellate court. And so she's dealt much more specifically in that aspect and, and has only, I believe, done two appellate opinions since she was confirmed to the D.C. Circuit. And so uh, because of that, I think Republicans kind of came in with a, maybe a little bit of skepticism about whether they would be able to find out her judicial philosophy as, as they view it from her opinions. And that's why they asked so extensively about it. And, and again and again, she returned to this idea of limited authority and neutrality. Yeah, I think that's what something I, that I found most interesting is, is, you know, how she didn't seem to fit into these labels, as you said. Um, and, and particularly, you know, how she kind of described her methodology in, in somewhat, you know, originalist or textualist terms, you know, which we tend to really, um, you know, pair up and link that up with more conservative justices. Um, you know, you mentioned this before, you know, Senator Chuck Grassley kind of talking about uh, the living constitution. And, and, and here was her response um, to his idea of that. 
I'm very acutely aware of the limitations on the exercise of my judicial power. And those limitations come in the form of adherence to the text when you, assuming you even get to that stage of the process that you have, uh, you have subject matter jurisdiction, you can reach the merits, then you are looking at the text and I do not believe that there is a, a, a living constitution in the sense that it's changing and, it, and it's infused with my own policy perspective or uh, you know, the policy perspective of the day. Um, instead, the Supreme Court has made clear that at, when you're interpreting the Constitution, you're looking at the text at the time of the founding and what the meaning was then as a constraint on my own authority. And so I apply that constraint. I look at the text uh, to determine what it meant to those who drafted it. So so James, you, like, like you said, you know, she was talking the language for some of these Republican senators. Um, how did they seem to respond to these answers? You know, I, I think there were a couple of instances where Republicans uh, were were sort of, I would say, maybe pleasantly surprised um, with some of her answers. Now, I, I don't think, based on the way that Republicans spoke about the hearing or the way that they questioned her, that that necessarily means that they agree with how they would define her judicial philosophy, or in in some cases, I think Republicans would say lack thereof. Um, but there were a couple of instances in the first day after a, a really extended back and forth with Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska that focused entirely on philosophy. Um, he was sort of complimentary of her um, in the way that she had kind of responded to some of those questions. In the second day, Senator Mike Lee um, of Utah, another Republican on the committee, again, had an extensive back and forth with her that started asking about some of her opinions and then more, more broadly. And he did say that he that he really liked the way that she had described the importance of, of constraining the text and interpreting the language and figuring out the original public meaning. Um, and so in that sense, I, I think there was sort of a, a positive reception in, in some cases to Republicans, to what she was saying about the way she approached cases. Now, whether that extends to a belief uh, among Republicans that that's the way that she would rule on constitutional issues on the Supreme Court is another question entirely. And, and I think that will probably be the differentiating factor for many Republicans who don't end up supporting her. But you could tell that at least in the way that she was answering those questions about her approach and methodology, there was some some reception from Republicans in, in sort of a positive manner. Yeah, I got I got a similar sense from some of the Republicans on the committee because I had the, a, a kind of a similar reaction where, you know, I'm hearing her talk in terms that you might ascribe to uh, an Antonin Scalia or, you know, maybe a Neil Gorsuch um, talking about adhering strictly to the text of the statute or the original public meaning of a constitutional provision. And, you know, I think at one point she even kind of um, really distanced herself from uh, a belief held by Justice Breyer, her former boss, who she's set to replace, um, that you know, the, interpreting foreign law is is an important exercise when it comes to uh, you know constitutional interpretation, and she says that that's really not the case at all. So it seems like you know that di wasn't the that didn't make up the gravamen of the objections that we heard from Republican senators um, 
you know these these kind of abstract arguments about judicial philosophy they were like a, a lot of debate about the particular specifics of her record so I, I just wanted to ask you james can you talk about what it is that the republican senators who seem kind of intent on opposing judge jackson's elevation to the supreme court what they really drilled down on during this marathon hearing yeah they drilled down on a couple of things um one that came up several times in, in several different capacities from Republicans was her representation of uh, detainees in Guantanamo Bay, um, both in terms of her time as a public defender and then um, the the briefs that she had filed in, in private practice as an attorney um, related to cases um, dealing with those, uh, specifically like Senator Cornyn of Texas uh, and Senator Cotton, um, and I believe Senator Graham as well, all brought up um, some habeas petitions that she had made that referred to um, that referred to torture and and referred to the question of of war crimes and there was a lot of splitting of hairs um particularly senator Cornyn expressed a lot of frustration um over the question of because former president bush and former former defense secretary donald rumsfeld were listed as defendants on those briefs was she accusing them of being war criminals and she sort of explained the nature of the briefs that she was making and why those arguments had to be made and why they had to be listed as as defendants but that was a pretty tense moment uh, and you could tell that it was a tense moment because Senator Durbin, the chairman, sort of stepped in and, and gave some explanation after a break, um, uh, you know, to, to kind of add to what Judge Jackson had said about it in the first day, which actually Senator Cornyn took umbrage to um, when he returned and realized that that comment had been made while he was not in the committee room. Um, so that was one aspect. And then the other aspect that that a lot of Republicans really drilled down on was her record in sentencing uh, at the trial court uh, in cases that had dealt with um, child sex abuse and child pornography. Uh, and this was something that we knew was going to come up in the hearing because Senator Josh Hawley had raised it the week before the hearing and had accused her of having a pattern of leniency uh, when it comes to rulings on these cases. Um, Republicans questioned her pretty extensively about that um, to the point where, where Democrats expressed a lot of frustration um, with that line of questioning and not just with questioning on her record, because I, I think there was a, a sort of sense that these are cases that she decided and sentences that she handed down. And so, there, it, you know, it's not as if they were necessarily out of bounds, but Democrats felt that the way Republicans asked about it and the way that they returned to it again and again and really pressed her on it was out of bounds. Um, but it was repeatedly questions about why she had handed out sentences that went below what prosecutors had asked for or went below what the sentencing guidelines had asked for. And she talked time and again about all of the different factors that went into her sentencing, including what prosecutors had asked for, including the guidelines, including um, obviously when she was on the sentencing commission, there was a study done about the guidelines being sort of considered out of date and that a lot of judges uh, feel that those the guidelines in those cases are out of date and that it's actually quite common for judges to hand down sentences that are outside of the sentencing guidelines for those reasons. And I think we have a clip, actually, of uh, Judge Jackson kind of responding to Josh Hawley, Senator Josh Hawley, about that very point where she's continuously being pressed about why she, as a trial judge, was not imposing these sentencing enhancements um, that are, you know, are called for by the guidelines for defendants who possess larger quantities of these types of uh, horrific images. And she kind of explains just what you're talking about there. So let's let's take a listen. Wouldn't we want to deter that? Isn't that a reason to impose tougher sentences? I mean, Senator, go ahead. The, the Congress has every ability to do that. What's happening now 
is that you have a guideline that has gradations in it for the number of images that ends up being, when you look at the scale, something like the difference of 10 years. I'm making, I, I don't know exactly what it is, but each, each two-level enhancement is like several years. And the gradations are like zero to, and again, I don't have it in front of me, but it's like zero to 50 pictures, 50 to 100 pictures, 100 to 150 pictures, set up at a time in which the male was the primary mode of possession and distribution. And so if somebody had 50 pictures, they, according to Congress and the commission at the time, deserved an extra 10 years in prison. Now, with that scale, everybody's at the top immediately, just because of the nature of the internet. So you're not differentiating using that scale anymore given the way this crime is committed. And so judges are having to decide how are we going to deal with the penalties and do our jobs to impose sentences that are sufficient but not greater than necessary under these circumstances. Yep. Thank you, Judge. I'll just I'll just say in closing that I So coming into these confirmation hearings, you know, I, I think we all kind of expected some of the questions used on the cameras and courts, court packing. Uh, one that I know we've talked about previously in an episode that we kind of expected was um, what her position on recusal in a, it would be, um, specifically because there's she's been uh, involved with the Harvard University system and there is a Harvard case that's set to go before the Supreme Court. Um, you know, with some of these questions, she, she kind of dodged a few and, or, or, you know, kind of demurred, but there was some news here with her her answer to the Harvard question in particular. So I just want to play this clip right here. So now you're you're on the board of overseers of Harvard. If you're confirmed, do you intend to recuse from this lawsuit? That is my plan, Senator. Okay. Yeah. So this this was maybe the only instance in the hearing where she gave uh, sort of a specific answer to something that she would do on the court. I, I mean, as you said. She got asked the questions that all nominees at this point are going to be asked, which is cameras in the courtroom. She said she would want to talk with the other justices before forming an opinion on it. She was asked about the use of the the shadow docket, and she said that she would want to understand how those decisions get made and have conversations with other justices before forming an opinion on it. She was asked about packing the court and said that it would be inappropriate to answer and that it was a matter left to Congress. It, questions and answers that, that kind of were expected. Uh, the one where she was very specific was in questioning from Senator Cruz, who uh, by happenstance uh, was at Harvard Law School at the same time that Judge Jackson was at Harvard Law School, um, which he referenced, uh, although I don't think they were the same year. Uh, but he asked specifically about her intention with the uh, the case um, about Harvard's admissions policy uh, before the court. And she did say that it was her plan to recuse from that case, um, which obviously has some very specific implications for the way that that case uh, could ultimately be decided. So let's turn to the historic nature of this confirmation. I, I want to know, how did Judge Jackson's status as the first black female Supreme Court nominee come up during these hearings and, and maybe what she had to say about that? So it came up both at the start of the hearings and then throughout. It, it, it's kind of, it's interesting when you're in the room and you're having different senators go through these different lines of inquiry, you almost lose yourself in the conversation that they're having. And uh, you know, the debates that they're having about judicial philosophy or specific cases, what have you. 
Um, one thing that was noteworthy was I think that especially on the second day, sort of at the beginning of each senator's questions, they, they kind of nodded to this is a tough process, but you're doing great. And like your family behind you and and in a couple of cases, nodded specifically to the historic nature of it. Um, and one in one example that I can think of right off the bat, Senator Grassley asked her sort of a question uh, on this on this topic. And she talked about her parents in Florida, both attending racially segregated schools and and the fact that she was now coming from diverse public high schools in Florida to be, she said, I think the first Floridian to be nominated to the Supreme Court. And that was just sort of, she talked about how powerful she thought it was for one generation to go from racially segregated schools to the positions that, that she was in there. And so there were moments like that where it came up throughout the hearing here and there. The moment where it really stood out um, was Senator Booker's speech, as I said earlier. And, and I think one of the most noteworthy things about that is it came at a point in the hearing pretty late in the second day. Um, it had been a real marathon session. And not only that, but it had just been, um, she had just sort of faced the questions in a row, um, not in a row because Democrats came in between, but Republicans, uh, questions from Senator Cruz, questions from Senator Hawley, questions from Senator Cotton, which were some of the most tense exchanges, some of the the senators who pushed the hardest on, for example, her record on sentencing. Um, and those were really difficult, really challenging exchanges. And there was a real feeling of tension in the room after those. And Senator Booker started by saying, relax, I'm not going to ask you any questions. You know, I'm going to support you. And then proceeded to talk for, uh, I, I think, if not the entirety of his 20 minutes, uh, you know, for, for, for an extensive period of time about what the nomination meant to him, what the nomination meant to her, what the nomination meant to the black community more broadly. And you could you could really feel the tension in the room kind of lift. Um, you know, as I said earlier, that the judge herself got emotional. Senator Booker got emotional. Um, after he gave his speech, um, he hugged both of her parents uh, who came from the audience over to, to give him a hug. Several of his Senate colleagues, including, I think, a couple of Republicans, came over to sort of commend him for what he had said. It, it just it sort of broke the back and forth tense questioning that she faced that that all nominees face and was kind of this this reminder of the historic nature of this particular nomination. And then that repeated again when when Senator Alex Padilla from California talked about the historic nature and then also asked her specifically. And she told this powerful story about, you know, coming from Florida and being at Harvard and feeling homesick and feeling sort of unsure if she belonged. It was rough. It was different from anything I'd known. There were lots of students there who were um, prep school kids like my husband, (laughs) um, who knew all about... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> knew all about Harvard, and, and that was not not me. And I think the first semester, I was really homesick. I was really questioning, um, do I belong here? Can I can I make it in this environment? And I was walking through the yard in the evening, and a black woman I did not know was passing me on the sidewalk. And she looked at me, and I guess she knew how I was feeling. And she leaned over as we crossed and said, persevere. I 
I would tell them to persevere. And a couple of senators after, um, I think Senator Padilla in a press conference after said simply persevere um, for his response to the hearing. I think that moment resonated with a lot of the senators in the room and a lot of the people who were in the room watching. And so there were the, you know, questions throughout the hearing nodding to this. And then there were those specific moments where a couple of senators took their time to specifically focus on the historic nature of the nomination and what that meant for the court and what that meant for the Senate and what that meant for them personally. So with these hearings now concluded, can you just give us a quick sense of what we can expect in the in the coming weeks and months for you know the remainder of this confirmation process? Yeah. So Senator Durbin has announced the uh, the first, they call it an executive session uh, from the committee, basically a business meeting where they move nominations. Monday, March 28th, uh, they'll hold over her nomination for a week, which always happens. It's just sort of the custom of the committee. So the expectation is she will get a committee vote on Monday, April 4th, and that would leave three, three or four days um, for the Senate to go through all the rigmarole of all the procedural hurdles and all the procedural votes, counting the votes, seeing who's going to support her. And then what I would expect, I, I don't think this has been necessarily determined yet, but often what the Senate will do with a major vote like this is rather than the way they usually cast their votes, which is senators kind of streaming in and out of the room, the votes take a long time, people are kind of, you know, having conversations, using that as a time to catch up with their colleagues. My, my expectation is that they will have all of the senators seated at their desks and that they will go through a roll call and call out the senators' names and the senators will call out their votes, uh, which happens not super often. It's, it's really reserved for major votes, um, votes of either historic nature or votes on major pieces of legislation or nominations. And that will probably happen, my guess would be either Thursday, April 8th or Friday, April 9th. And that's the, the last day that the Senate is in before they take a two-week break for the Easter holiday. And so I, I think that week of April 4th, she's going to get her committee vote. There's going to be the debate on the floor. And uh, unless something changes between now and then, unless something pops up that derails her nomination in an unexpected way, I think that week of April 4th is is likely to be the week that she's confirmed. Well, I know we'll be kind of at our virtual seats watching, um, for, for at least I will. Um, James, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you guys for having me on. So that was a great conversation, as always, with James. Um, I think, Jimmy, that just about wraps up, though. Yeah, thanks, Natalie. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in this week. We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, our executive producer, Amber McKinney, contributing reporter uh, and guest, James Arkin. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law360 in the term. Thanks for listening and please write us a review.